Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friend Show. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you doing? I am doing well, thanks. It's good to, to share the airwaves here at TDF again with Hadrant, whom I haven't shared the waves with since returning, and it's good to be back. The only risk is now I'm I'm going to be compared to him, and I'll come up intellectually short, but and physically sure, but I mean, that's 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 the way of the world that works. Uh, and of course, we're also joined by Gerban van Heerden. Harry, how are you doing? I'm a happy, floating, talking head at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you guys can see my shoulders. Um, Only just. White wall. Yeah. No, I like it. It gives a sort of mystical element to the, to the YouTube. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so... Uh, Speaking of weird things going on, um, things are coming to a bit of a head in Cape Town, it seems. Uh, Santaco, the, the, the taxi organization, and uh, is, is still continuing with its strike against the city of Cape Town. The, origina the origination of this dispute is uh, that the city of Cape Town passed new bylaws that would allow it to immediately impound vehicles um, as they said that fines were not working in getting people to obey the law. This has prompted very severe backlash from taxi drivers, taxi owners. Uh, and we've seen, unfortunately, not just the blockading of roads and the strike preventing people from being able to get to school and to work, etc., but also quite a lot of violence. Lots and lots of trucks and buses burned, um, a, a fair amount of chaos across the city, uh, a large number of arrests, of people who have allegedly been engaging in some of these activities. Um, particularly target has been the Golden Arrow bus service, which actually got an urgent interim interdict against Santaco after some of their buses were torched. Uh, Santaco basically says, look, it's just, you know, it's just, it's nothing to do with us. We told everyone to obey the law. It's uh, it's rogue elements. Um, and they say that, uh, that, that they have nothing to do with any of the violence. I think, um, Someone's been shot in the leg. I think someone was killed, a LEAP officer, um, which is basically a local law enforcement officer in the Western Cape. So really bad stuff. 27 schools were forced to shut down. Um, and I think something like more than 50 people have been arrested at this point. The city of Cape Town did go and get a court interdict um, against Santaco strike saying uh, that the, the, the court interdict prohibits people, vehicles, taxis, and drivers from blockading public roads in a manner that may cause traffic delays. It also further states that no person may approach within 100 meters of any transportation depot within the Cape Metropole, and no person may interfere with uh, the operations of any transportation depot. Um, so the city has also gone on to say that they can't basically give in to Santaco's demands now because if they did so, it would legitimize this kind of uh, violence and behavior. Herman, um, let me start with you. Uh, firstly, I just want to say as a kind of a bit of an aside, it, it's always a little bit sad to me when an organization goes and gets a court interdict to prevent something that's already illegal. Um, mm. <laughs> burning buses is already illegal. Uh, but the Golden Arrow bus company still felt the need that it needed to go and get a court interdict. I'm not really sure what that does, but it's just, uh, it's depressing, you know, um, yeah. we, you don't need a court interdict. That's already illegal. 
Um, what do you make of this? I think I think I'm pretty much agree with the city statement here that regardless of whether their um, sort of approach to this was correct from the beginning, if you back down now, it'll legitimize a whole way of interacting with politics that has been the norm, I think, in lots of South Africa for far too long. And it is profoundly corrosive to the uh, health and stability of our democracy. What do you make of this? Absolutely, absolutely. It is... Um, it, it comes down to negotiating with terrorists uh, in, in the sense that if you start giving in to demands, um, hostage taking, ransom seeking uh, becomes profitable uh, and uh, as or becomes at least solid leverage to uh, be a means to an. A similar situation faced the UK in the 70s when they had the labor unions from the grave digging union to the teachers union to the mine workers union to the uh, printers union to the every union under the sun um had this situation where it was like the first world war if one of them went on strike the whole lot of them were bound to go on strike and it created this conflict of vested interests versus essentially the rest of society and South Africa is in a similar situation in principle, but I think we are far deeper in the muck. Uh, and we see this on a few fronts. We see it now with the taxi uh, sector industry that has grown so uh, aggressive and powerful that even during the most draconian periods in lockdown, it felt enabled and confident enough to simply ignore state instructions and state regulations. Now, as stupid as those were, it is quite telling when your government steps up its uh, control and turns up the volume on that button to 11, and still you have a sector in your society saying, how about no? So number one, we've got a very muscular, aggressive, and powerful uh, a, a taxi mafia industry group of vested interests there. On the same, along the same lines, we look at the municipal worker strike in Tswane, where another group of vested interests um, are setting themselves up against, firstly, reality, and secondly, the rest of society, that Tswane ratepayers cannot afford a raise, but yet now we're in this Mexican standoff where if the government blinks, then negotiations with terrorists will pay. Not that I'm calling them terrorists, but the principle of leverage and uh, uh, coercive leverage applies. And then you also have the Zamazamas, where a few weeks ago on this show, we discussed an incident where um, uh, a Zamazama sort of warlord was then essentially employed by the mining company he was making life difficult for, and it was presented as some sort of success story. The problem is that is giving in to uh, violent coercion um, to achieve the mean, to achieve the ends that you cannot get through other legal or peaceful means. And these instances of municipal workers, the taxis and the Zamazamas, 
they're just three examples that over the last few months really came to a head in South Africa, where we see state failure over decades, empowering vested interest groups that can essentially expand into an unregulated lawless sphere, either geographically or in terms of an economic area or function, and operate with no consequence. And then the problem becomes, what do you do if you face these forces? And Thatcher had the advantage that there was an obvious workaround with specifically the coal miners' strike that ultimately broke the back of the labor unions. She could hoard coal so that a strike would not interrupt the rest of the country as it did in the 1970s when power cuts in the UK forced the five-week workday to fall to a three-week workday and thus slice productivity and income for the whole country. She could use that tactical advantage because it was a resource that was hoardable. In South Africa, how do you break the back of the stranglehold of essentially a violent monopoly like the taxi mafia, like the taxi bosses? Where do you even start untangling that mess, understanding that law politics, government, private interest, labor, small businesses, and your ordinary South African all have a stake in this and all might have a role to play in turning this around. We are seeing um, venomous chickens coming home to roost. <laughs> venomous chickens, okay. Um, so that's why, that's I my think... first rap album, by the way. No, I like I like that uh, that 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 take quite a lot, Herman. And I think what this really lays bare, and here I want your thoughts on whether you agree with me here, is that you know we often say reforming South Africa and fixing its problems is going to be difficult, um, but I don't think a lot of people have in mind exactly what that looks like. This is what that looks like. You know, I'm not the biggest fan, I will admit, of traffic laws, but. Uh, it's true that people often, you know, particularly a lot of taxis, don't pay fines or don't, you know, follow the rules of the road particularly closely, and that you know maybe impounding was the only way to deal with them. And that sort of harsh action, and now the the response to it, that is the you know the the the, the violence and the chaos and the blockading and all of that, that's going to play out in every single sector of the country that it is in urgent need of reform before we get to a place where reform is actually implemented. Uh, and that means that the process of fixing South Africa's problems is going to involve probably quite a lot of instability, not just sort of a general upward trajectory of stability. Um, what do you make of that, uh, Ferry? Yeah, I think, um, and we touched on this in uh, the, the, the previous show um, last week, um, lawlessness has been allowed to, you know, fester throughout South African society without anybody being held accountable. And, um, you know, with regards to the taxi industry, uh, the national government has for years allowed them to monop monopolize very important routes with without any sort of consequence. So, when you try to enforce laws, there's uh, suddenly it's definitely going to lead to um, the massive violence that we've seen in the last uh, few days. Um, I'm also um, mindful about the the slow response from the police, 
and the fact that uh, Minister, Police Minister Begitsele was at the location where the strike was declared. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, that we are about a, a year, less than a year away from a national election. And the ANC, I don't want to be some sort of conspiracy theorist, but the ANC Youth League uh, in, in the Western Cape have for years stated that they um, want to render the, the province, the DA-led province, ungovernable. And maybe this is some sort of indirect tactic from the ANC, either by stoking violence through the taxi industry or just by simply not um, uh, enacting uh, quickly enough or, or, or um, responding quickly enough to, to the violence uh, in, in Cape Town and in the rest of the, the province. Um, but um, at worst, this is something that is done maliciously because it is a ele election year. And um, at best, it's simply uh, what we're seeing um, are the results of an incompetent government, a very weak uh, police system that we've had. We've seen um, confidence in the police. Um, consistently declined for over 10 years because they're unable to clamp down on extortionists, mafia-style criminals, and on, um, you know, controlling the, the taxi industry. The taxi industry is mighty. Millions and millions of people um, depend on them, and they, they, they can easily hold the economy, um, um, they can easily hold it at a stranglehold. So, yeah, I think um, it's just uh, the, the results of years of years of neglect of really trying to enforce um, basic laws. Hello. Uh, any final thoughts on this before we move on to ESCOM? Yeah, um, Hany in a, in a show the other day uh, mentioned a very, very worrying statistic um, explaining how state failure has allowed these sorts of vested interests to become powerful and violent and just, you know, be able to hold us hostage in a way. And that was the decline of passenger journeys by rail from 2008 to 2022. I think, Harry, the figure was something along the lines of 600 million passenger journeys per year in 2008 to 200 million passenger journeys per really? year. 20, 20 million, my goodness. So, so that is just an, uh, an indication of these people didn't stop moving about. Some of them might have because they, they you know, they, they literally didn't have access to economic participation. But most of them have gone to alternative means of transport for, to get to your place of work. And what would that be? Your taxis. So we sit in a situation where four, what, 580 million passenger rail journeys might have become the strength of the taxi industry since 2008 because the state's ability to maintain the rail infrastructure left them with nowhere else to go. And now you're a bit in the situation where, you know, 
you're in debt to a loan shark and he has a reputation for breaking news. Exactly. Okay, um, let's move on to a discussion about ESCOM. Uh, so the electricity minister, which is I think in government, despite the high pay, probably one of the least well, one of the least pleasant jobs, uh, because you have to go out and basically uh, sort of muck about with the unfixable, at least un uh, regarding the powers that he's been given. But uh, I don't know, maybe I'm being too generous. But anyway, so Minister Ramakhopa uh, was quite honest in a talk he recently gave about the incredibly high costs of load shedding on the country. Um, talking about sort of, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of rands in economic value that have been lost, uh, about the number of jobs which have been lost, which he calculated about 860,000 in 2023 alone. Um, never mind all of the other years of load shedding, although, of course, this has been, I believe, by most metrics, the worst year for load shedding already, uh, uh, by far. But quite shockingly, he said that he expects a loss of 77 billion rand in tax earnings in 2023, which is about 5% of the total tax revenue uh, that was taken in, in 2021-2022 for a fiscal year which is obviously a very big blow to the government's finances. He also mentioned that the open cycle gas turbines, which are supposed to be used in emergencies, uh, have been used, uh, they, were, they were used to produce uh, 1,352 gigawatt hours of electricity in the same period last year. And this year in that, in that same period, they've been almost double, about 80% uh, more use of them, 2,100 and 13 gigawatt hours. So in other words, those very expensive emergency only things are, you know, being used almost twice as much as they were last year, which does not engender. Harry, what do you make of all this? I mean, that amount of tax revenue, you know, we had just kind of towards the end of, of, of the COVID stuff, there was this little boost in tax revenue um, because of the higher commodity prices and the mines made a big chunk of profit which they were able to hand over to the government and that kind of kept us from falling off I think the fiscal cliff we were heading for but now with a loss of with a loss like that it looks kind of like to me a lot of these gains of those years will be wiped out what do you make of this yeah it's, it is as you say Nicholas South Africa has been lucky in the last few years that um, you know in the sense we are a very mineral rich country and with a commodity boom we do quite well government finances get a boost from that. Um, but, um, you know, there are signs that um, the, the global investment environment is becoming more risk averse. And countries such as South Africa with a very hostile uh, policy environment to business, to investors, um, it's going to be very difficult on the one hand for South Africa in the next coming years to attract capital. And at the same time, we're also seeing um, our wealthiest members of society um, packing their bags and leaving us for, for better markets, for, for better investor markets. But the, the point is, is that our tax revenue sources are... Um, getting 
several blows from from different angles and then on top of all that you have our energy utility which um is collapsing which is using um which is looking at emergent emergency strategies to 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 keep the lights on which is absolutely unsustainable and this is going to deal um, a heavy blow to high energy consumption um, industries such as the mining industry, the manufacturing industry that, that also pay a lot of tax and, and the, the government really benefits from those in, uh, industries in terms of tax revenue. So, um, you know, once, once they are unable to, you know, to, to up their profits and up their tax uh, contributions, um, it's really going to uh, cause a huge vacuum in, in the, the government finances. And then at the same time, you, you have the government that wants to bring in all these um, massive new uh, projects that's going to cost a lot of money um, but where is the money coming from? It's it's all very unsustainable, and yet there's no real policy reform uh, on the horizon from the the government. Um, it's it's very very interesting to witness, actually. So Herman, uh, you know, if 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 someone from government heard what Kerry just said, they would say, no, no, but look, look, we're bringing online all this new capacity. Um, through things like you know wind farms and solar panels and all that kind of stuff, and we're, it's just taking time to procure that uh, that electricity. But once you know it's all in the pipeline and it's coming now, and uh, uh, you know no one really could have done it faster. Um, but you have a figure which perhaps suggests that's not entirely correct. Yes, no, I, I think firstly, just for some historical context. Um, these warnings of load shedding and capacity of uh, limits of the grid aren't new. I mean, I think all three of us were at school still um, when those warnings became prevalent, um, possibly primary school. I think it was towards the late 90s, but by 2007, it was absolutely clear that ESCOM couldn't keep up in terms of its grid development or generation capacity. Right, which is why they built Madupi and Kusile, these two huge new coal power plants. Uh, but that didn't solve the problem, partly because they built them so badly and so corruptly. Yes, because uh, preferential procurement, cater deployment, BEE, I mean, you know, pick your poison. Um, but the fascinating figure that, that I saw is, was reported on in, the, uh, in, in business tech uh, a few days ago, indicating that, and let me read here, um, data shows that South African households and businesses have installed an, est and, uh, an estimated 4,400 megawatt of rooftop solar PV, double the solar capacity procured under ESCOM's four bid windows. Another fact that I want to put out there in context is I spoke to uh, an analyst the other day who said that over the last year, more generation capacity has been added through businesses and private homes through solar, or at least the equivalent of generation capacity generated by solar panels 
on residences and businesses over the last year, equivalent to more than a decade of ESCOM working for capacity expansion in terms of power generation. And then to put that in a final bit of context, that Rand Merch, uh, RMB Morgan Stanley um, shows that by 2025, um, private sector power generation will exceed the output from ESCOM's entire generation fleet, with ESCOM becoming responsible for 47% of, uh, of, of, of energy production and the rest coming from uh, individual private residences and businesses. Now, we are often accused of being ideologues for the free market uh, irrespective, but it's difficult to fault the fact that when pressure came, the free market responded quicker. And this isn't just in this instance. We can look at the crime wave that started in the 1980s and really broke over the country in the 1990s, that gave rise to the situation that we are now in a country where private security guards outnumber our police forces five to one. I we are in a country, possibly, yeah, yeah, at least five to one. We are in a country where time and again, when a societal problem was faced and the state was found incapable of rising to meet the challenge, private sector actors did so. Um, are these private sector actors, you know, wonderful, angelic beings? No, they are profit chasers. But you know they are profit chasers who have delivered the services we are willing to pay the profits for. I've got burglar bars on my windows. I've got um, alarm sensors around my house. I've got a spiky fence. Um, and yet I'm still paying for the police to keep me safe. As a South African, I have made the decision to rather absorb the loss that I pay to the state in terms of uh, my police investment and spend some of my own money after tax um, to look after responsibilities that should by rights be with the government. The country has done it before, and it is incredible that we are doing it again. And I'm not saying that's a wonderful thing. I'm just showing that if you want a problem solved in record time, it is imbecilic to look to the state to do it. And then we also have the Minister for, for Electricity, who a few days ago said, ESCOM grid expansion will be prioritized over the next 10 years. And I'm like, ah, one was it prioritized if, until now? <laughs> if, 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 only, if only someone had thought about that. And this just all comes down to, to the fact that we, I think three years ago, uh, Nick Curry and, and the, the three of us possibly and I think France in a conversation when we still had offices came to the conclusion and I um, might have been other colleagues there as well that but the fact that this country can't grow at more than two percent annually GDP in terms of GDP unless it solves the power crisis the power crisis is a hard cap on what can be achieved in terms of job and economic growth and if we look at the loss of 800,000 plus jobs due to load shedding and we draw a parallel between 1% GDP growth roughly equals 100,000 jobs created, we will need 8% GDP 
GDP growth on a year-by-year basis to make up for the disaster of ESCOM. And I think if there's one thing that we should be critical of um, civic, civil society, businesses, and local government in South Africa, is next time when we see government failing to deal with a crisis, let's not hedge our bets and hope they will deal with the crisis in time. Be proactive, anticipate the problem of power generation, and the warning, perhaps even now too late, is that the water situation will go a similar route to this. Already now, citizens, businesses, and local governments should be massively investing and exploring alternative sources of water. We've done it to ele- we've done it with crime and safety and security. We're doing it as a country with electricity. The next frontier will be water security. And if we get fooled again, yeah, shame on us. I, uh, I I think that's also kind of interesting to think about this as in uh, if the government could actually just stop the decline of ESCOM, if it could just sort of hold it where it is now, uh, load shedding might end because the private sector is becoming so involved. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've seen it in the energy availability factor and stuff that it has continued to decline, um, even as the government says it's desperately trying to bring on new sources of energy. And it is, and it's a vicious cycle because ESCOM has run up so much debt; it needs income to pay off its debt, but it can't right. generate power to sell to get income to pay off its debt. So it's just losing customers, and it, it takes a special sort of dedication to have a monopoly and make a loss <laughs> on something like power. That takes yeah. skill and commitment. Indeed. Um, all right. I don't think we really have time for our last story here. So I think I'm going to call it to a close. Um, but uh, well, it won't be a show tomorrow because it is, of course, Women's Day. And so I hope everyone enjoys the day off. And with that, all I can say is uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope you found this interesting. And we will see you on Thursday for a Daily Friend Rap show in the afternoon. Uh, everyone have a wonderful public holiday. Cheers. Cheers.